Beloved, this evening we will look at God's Word in two uh, well-known sections of the Bible. And if you're thinking about where do I go when I want to think about uh, the Christian family or a godly home, uh, you want to go to Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6. It's really easy to remember. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6. So if you'll open with me to Deuteronomy 6, uh, first of all, uh, and we're going to look at verses 4 uh, and following, 4 through 9. And then we'll look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. First of all, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then if you'll turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6, and beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen. Well, thus far the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we are ever mindful of our utter and complete dependence upon you, both physically and spiritually. And so we ask, Lord, that as your word is preached, as we soon will come to the Lord's table, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would, by your spirit, give us that light, and by your grace, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, that we would look to Christ alone for our salvation, and that in him we would seek to honor you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last year was a banner year for Christ Church with kids born. I don't know how we'll ever outdo that. Maybe one day we will. Uh, according to my calculations, there were uh, 12, I think 13 born, if you go from January to January, um, but uh, 13 babies. Uh, born into this congregation in this past year, and we praise the Lord for that. We have growing families uh, in the life of this church, and it's important from time to time that we uh, consider what a Christian home is and what a godly home and family is. Now, this is a massive, exhaustive sort of subject. I think I spent uh, many weeks on this subject at one point a couple of years ago as we did an entire series in the Christian family, But I want to touch upon some highlights, some important things that we need to remember, because we are, of course, in an age uh, where Satan is on the attack. And he's on the attack uh, in all kinds of ways, but particularly as it concerns the family. Uh, There is an aggressive ideological move in in the culture in which we live to redefine the family, to redefine marriage, to redefine children, uh, to redefine reality, 
to redefine what a man is, to redefine what a woman is. Uh, as you may have seen this past week in an Orwellian moment in the life of our country, as uh, wo National Women's Day was being celebrated, an award was given to a man dressed like a woman. And it's quite ironic when you have the movement of women's liberation in the 60s, which we know many good things came out of that. Not all good, but any cultural movements, not, it's not all good. And often it's not all bad. And it's ironic that now men are taking the, the awards that are to be given to women. It's extraordinary what's happening in our culture. So there's just a lot of confusion. There's an unraveling of our uh, the, fab, the moral fabric of our uh, society. And so uh, this evening, as we're thinking about the Christian family, it shouldn't be lost on us how important it is that we remind ourselves of these important truths and principles about the godly home. Now, our text for this evening, at least uh, uh, the part in Ephesians, we'll, we'll touch upon Deuteronomy in uh, a few minutes, but our text, our main text is Ephesians chapter 6, and, and we know that it, it comes immediately after Paul's teaching on marriage. And so we have this very practical teaching, uh, some actually deep theology as well in Ephesians 5 as it concerns marriage. Uh, but this, this section in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is found in a larger section on practical Christian living, because the Christian life isn't just to be lived in books not just theoretical, it's not just obscure, it's not just up there. We need to bring it down, theology for life, doctrine for life. And this letter uh, to the Ephesians can be loosely divided in two sections. The first section, Ephesians chapter 1 uh, through chapter 3, uh, deals with all kinds of indicatives teaching us about the God of salvation and how He has saved us, how He has saved us. The second section, roughly chapters 4 through 6, teaches us how we are to live in response to the grace of God. And, of course, we don't even do that apart from the work of the Spirit within us. It's all of grace. And so we see a kind of transitional verse. If you look in chapter 4 and verse 1, there's a kind of transitional verse from chapters 1 through 3 and then a, a, a transitional verse from chapters 4 and following. He says, I therefore, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so we learn about that calling in chapters 1 through 3. That, that calling as in salvation. And then in chapters 4 and following, we are urged to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In other words, this doctrine, this theology that we learn in chapters 1 through 3 means something for our lives. It's not just to be said, oh yeah, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord for His grace. Now I carry on living like everyone else. And it's interesting what is emphasized straight away. Look at verse 2 with me, Ephesians 4, 2. Okay, so walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Listen to this description, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
what we are reminded of here is that those who are in the body of Christ already have unity in Christ, and we are called to maintain that unity. And we do so through these wonderful marks of the Christian life, gentleness, humility, patience, bearing with one another in love. And that's all very difficult, particularly when we try to do it in our own strength. And so here we have a picture of the Christian life. Our faith rests in the work of Christ alone for our salvation, and the fruit of that faith is a life of growing gratitude, of worship, and of imperfect but growing obedience to God's word. And one of the ways we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called is to glorify God in our homes, is to glorify God in our homes and in our families. We not only see that in Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6, but in many parts of Scripture. One of the most familiar is from Joshua 24, uh, and uh, one of the verses within uh, this wonderful chapter is on our wall right above our piano. Joshua exhorted the people of Israel not long before his death, and he said this, Now therefore fear the Lord. This is Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. It's a wonderful kind of declaration. You may want to serve those gods. Uh, you may want to serve those gods. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, this evening, we're going to consider some important biblical and practical ways that we can serve the Lord in our homes. And I do want to be very practical this evening. The first thing I want us to consider is that the Christian family is devoted to worship. A godly home is devoted to worship. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And, and one of the ways that we glorify God, the chief way really is to worship Him. It's what we're going to be doing forever and ever in, in glory. What is a Christian home if not a home that is committed to the worship of God? A Christian family is a family that worships God the Father through faith in God the Son by the enabling power of God the Holy Spirit. It's a family that glorifies God and enjoys Him by seeking His face in worship. We live quorum Deo. We live before the face of God to worship God, to honor God. And, and formal and structured times of worship, therefore, are, are not that which just happens on Sunday. Yeah, we have formal, structured times of worship here on the Lord's Day, 10.30 a.m., 5.30 p.m. every Lord's Day. But these aren't the only formal and structured times we have. And if our homes are going to be places of, of godliness, uh, schools of Christ, we want our homes to be a school of Christ, then we need to worship God in our homes as well. And by the way, it's one of the main distinctions between a Christian home and a non-Christian home. In a Christian home, we worship God. In a non-Christian home, you don't. So if you have a Christian home, so-called, that doesn't worship God, 
where the Bible is not open, where there is no prayer, where there is no singing, where there is no structured times of worship, then, of course, you are not unlike the non-Christian home next door. A Christian home worships God. A non-Christian home does not. And there are three types of worship that should take place in a Christian family. The first one, of course, is private worship. Private worship. This is one-on-one time with God. It's, a, it's an expression of your personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Remember Psalm 23. David says, the Lord is what? My shepherd. There's a personal aspect to your relationship with God. I think uh, probably in uh, modern American evangelicalism, the emphasis is almost solely placed upon the self. Uh, and so, you know, we need to make that clarification that uh, what we're talking about here is not this sort of, you know, me, Jesus, and my Bible, and that's really the main focus of my Christian life. Oh, no, we don't see that kind of, of, of individualistic approach to the Christian faith in the Bible, either in the Old or the New Testaments. But there is an individual aspect and a personal aspect to our walks with God. And how do we express that? Well, we express that by spending time with God, by spending time with God. I've heard some say, I've heard them say to my face that it's legalistic to even imply that we should be spending time with God on a personal basis. And I'm, I want to say back to them, do you, do you say that to your wife? You know, I really love you, honey, but I don't want to see you for a couple of weeks. It'll be legalistic if we spend time together. I don't want people to think that I have to spend time with you, so I'm just not going to spend time with you. I mean, think of how ridiculous that is. So spending time with God, it shouldn't be legalistic, of course. And if you think that chalking up your quiet time every day is making yourself right with God, then you have a real defective view of the gospel. Because as we learned this morning, nothing we do, nothing we do gives us a right standing with God. It's all of what Christ has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection and his sinless life, of course. But personal devotions are important. They include Bible reading, meditation on what the Scriptures say. Perhaps there's the reading of devotional material or Christian literature, such as printed sermons. It used to be that Christians read printed sermons all the time. They were published in the newspapers. Spurgeon's sermons in the 19th century were some of the the main reading in the newspaper. Of course, we don't have that anymore, but we have a lot of wonderful collections of sermons. Read good sermons. Read good books. Of course, ultimately, read your Bible. Spend time in prayer. This, this time may be as brief as 10 minutes. It may be as long as, as three hours. Say if you're retired or something, you have that extra time. But it's important that we set aside time with the Lord, not only to put on the armor of God before you go out into your day, but also to, to, to remind ourselves you know, why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your trust in God, reminding yourself of God's promises as you go out into your day and face the world and all of its temptations and, and struggles. And I do believe that mornings are best. I do believe that mornings are best as you go out into your day. But we should not only do our devotions privately in our homes, 
It's equally important that we worship God daily as families. And can I say this as well, that it is so important that our children, this is a word to, to, the, to the parents, that children see us reading our Bibles. Again, it's not a show. It's just you're doing it because you love God. And you, but it's important that children see their parents reading their Bibles, praying. You know, if they never walk in the room and walk out and, and start saying something and walk out because you're praying, then maybe you're not praying enough for them. We need to be on our knees in prayer. But how about family worship? This is so important. We need to recover this ancient and biblical practice of piety in the home. Godly homes are built in part by spending time in the word and prayer as families, as families. Now, while there is no explicit command to gather together for a formal time of worship in the home, we see scores of verses about worshiping God and teaching our children the ways of God. And, and, and one of those, of course, one of those ways is to have a formal structured time of family worship. Again, we read earlier from Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. It sounds to me like here what's being encouraged is that in the family you talk about God. You talk about His Word. You sharpen one another. You encourage one another. It's, it's not something you just reserve for Sundays. No, we talk as families around the table about God's Word and what He's teaching us, how we're growing. Our text for this evening in Ephesians 6, which we're going to consider in more detail in a few moments, exhorts fathers to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What better way to do this than to have a regular time of worship? By the way, you might say, well, pastor, I don't, you know, we don't, our kids aren't in the house anymore. Well, have family worship with your spouse. Um, if, what if you don't have kids yet? Have family worship with your spouse. 17th century Puritan Thomas Doolittle wrote that God is the, quote, founder of all families, the owner of our families, the master and governor of our families, and the benefactor of your families. And so families are bound to worship with him, to worship him, rather. So how can we argue with that? He owns our families. He made our families. He's the master and governor of our families. He's the benefactor of our family, so we are bound to worship him. But what does family worship look like? Well, if we're honest, sometimes it looks like a war zone. Sometimes it is hard, right? Uh, it's like, you know, by the end of the 10 minutes of trying to make it work, everybody's frustrated, and, uh, you know, you just have to shut it down sometimes, don't you? You just have to shut it down sometimes. But, 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 what family worship is meant to be is a time to gather together, to open God's Word, to read God's Word. If you have small children, to sing some children's gospel songs, uh, to sing a hymn, uh, to spend time in prayer together, maybe read a little bit of church history. There are lots of wonderful children's church history books that Reformation Heritage Book publishes. It's a time to be together. This can be a short time. It can be a longer time. And you always want to judge uh, how long that time should be based on moods, uh, based on uh, schedules, uh, and we've all made mistakes on this, of course. Uh, dads, you don't want to read a book on family worship and then get all fired up and try to have an, you know, a two-hour family worship time uh, to uh, the testing of the patience of your wife and your children. Um, 
I have had to confess uh, these kinds of uh, things before, that I have tried to do these things, and they don't work so well. But what should happen during this time? Again, Bible reading, the singing of psalms and hymns. You know, we have these, these hymnals. You may want to pick up a couple for your house. Uh, it's good to have a shelf full of hymnals so you can go grab the hymnals and sing to God's uh, praise. Uh, it's a time uh, to, uh, to be catechized as well, the shorter catechism, to move through those questions and answers. Uh, and it's important to, to have prayer, and we teach our children to pray uh, in these times. And so uh, this, this time of devotion is so important in the life of the family. Um, uh, what are some obstacles to regular family worship? What are some obstacles? Well, number one is just plain neglect. Uh, the head of the house just doesn't make it a priority. The television is on for several hours a day. Newspapers and the Internet's a daily routine. Three meals a day is standard, but setting aside a few minutes for family worship gets marginalized, gets pushed to the side. It's just neglect. But we're called to be still and to know that God is God and that we are not and that His Word is true. And so let us not neglect family worship. Another excuse is just busyness because our lives get very hectic and we need to slow down as families if we become overly busy. And as I say these things, um, it's true for all of us in this room. All of us in this room. There's not a, a couple or a family that doesn't find themselves busy or at times neglecting the things that are most important. But again, we're being reminded of these things. And we're thankful for God's grace and patience with us. But if we never have time for God in our homes, we've clearly become too busy and need to reevaluate our lives and schedules. And if you have small children, just remember this, you only have those children for a short amount of time. And uh, we want to pray for them. We want them to remember as they grew up in our homes to hear the prayers of their parents and the singing of their family. It has such a powerful and formative effect uh, on their lives. It's not a formula. It's not uh, a kind of code that you punch in and, and you're guaranteed to have godly children, but this is God's way. And when we carry out His way, as stated in Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6, we know that there is so often great blessing, and our children do embrace the promises uh, of God. And when they don't, we pray for them that they would repent and believe the wonderful promises of the gospel. So too busy, that's an obstacle, plain neglect. And then another one is fits, starts, and stops. This is a huge obstacle to family worship. Perhaps you've experienced it. You're doing well for uh, a few weeks or a few months, and then you kind of neglect it, and you're like, well, whatever. This is not going to work. I can't keep up with this. But you can. Just start again. Don't be overly discouraged. Many of us will miss a day or two or a week or two from time to time. but This shouldn't stop us from starting up again and making family worship a regular practice in our homes. So I'll encourage you this evening, beloved. If you have found yourself getting out of the habit, the regular habit of regular family worship in the home, let's restart it. Let's spend time together. Uh, The fact is, many of us will struggle with these things, but we don't want to neglect family worship. We want to recover it in our families and in our churches for the glory of God and the spiritual health and discipleship of our families. We are called to make disciples of all nations. But that begins in our homes. 
we begin with our own children to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the church, of course, that we receive the preaching of the word and the sacraments and spiritual oversight for the benefit of our souls. And so it's not a privatized Christianity of just us at home by ourselves or just with our families. No, we need the church. We need Lord's Day public worship. The Christian family is devoted to public worship on the Lord's Day. The gospel is central in this. Again, this is not a legalism. It's not harsh. We, we say that the Christian, number two, the Christian family is devoted to a Christian Sabbath. A Christian family is devoted to a Christian Sabbath. J.C. Ryle, a wonderful Anglican bishop, uh, states that in addition to the Christian Sabbath being good for mankind's body and his mind, quote, the Sabbath is an unmixed good for man's soul. The soul has its wants just as much as the mind and body. It is in the midst of a hurrying, bustling world in which it its interests are constantly in danger of being jostled out of sight. He's writing this in the 19th century, by the way. He goes on, To have those interests properly attended to, there must be a special day set apart. There must be a regularly recurring time for examining the state of our souls. There must be a day to test and prove us whether we are prepared for an eternal heaven. Take away a man's Sabbath, and his religion soon comes to nothing. As a general rule, there is a regular rite of steps down from no Sabbath to no God. End quote. The Sabbath was instituted at creation. It was republished in the Ten Commandments and underscored by the prophets and reinforced by Jesus Christ, who calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath. It was changed to the first day of the week in the New Covenant Church, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and it has been practiced by Christians for nearly 2,000 years. The Sabbath, the Puritan said, is the market day of the soul. It's the market day of the soul. It's, it's like when you go to Costco to get all your you know, 15 carts of, of, of groceries, and you say, oh, this is going to last us for a month, and then it lasts you for like a week, and you've eaten way too much you got it in bulk. The Sabbath is when you come to receive all the blessings, the spiritual delights, the encouragement, the comfort, the challenges, the rebukes, the corrections. The Sabbath is the market day of the soul, a day of worship and spiritual nourishment, a tithe of one day in seven, as it were, the first day of the week wherein we rest in God's saving grace and get a foretaste of heaven as we gather with God's people for worship and fellowship. The Sabbath is not family fun day, but rather it is a day of worship and rest that we carry out with our family in the context of our larger church family. You say, well, pastor, the, you know, the Sabbath at Christ Church is not very restful. It's not very restful. We've got the prayer meeting at 8.50. And we have Sunday school at 9.30. And then we have morning worship at 10.30. And then oftentimes uh, we'll have uh, some things going on uh, between 4 and 5.30. And then we have the 5.30 service. That doesn't sound restful. Well, here's the thing. When it talks about Sabbath rest, it's talking about resting from the ordinary things 
resting from the things of the world and resting in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, which we do together as a family. And I would say that after uh, over 20 years of ordained ministry, that the Christians that I've known who have been the most exhausted have been the ones that have not kept the Lord's Day. Because there's something that's strengthening and empowering and encouraging that happens when observing a Christian Sabbath that doesn't happen when one does not. And so resting doesn't mean taking a four-hour nap. Resting means resting from our ordinary labors and resting in the Lord. You understand that when God rested on the seventh day, it wasn't like he stopped upholding the universe and stopped working. No, he just rested from creation, the work of creation. But of course, he was upholding it and doing all that he does. And so the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath is a weekly reminder for our families, for our children, that Christ is risen. He is our Savior and Lord by grace through faith. The Christian family is committed to this. It's one of the most practical ways that we are distinguished from the rest of the world. We are Christians, and so we obey the fourth commandment, and we go to be with God's people on the Lord's Day. One of the most detrimental decisions in the 20th century church has been the eradication of the evening service. You knew this was coming. It has turned the Lord's Day into the Lord's morning and has thus removed half of the church's public worship and receiving of the means of grace. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this or take it too far, but it's quite extraordinary that in the frontal, massive, blitzkrieg, kind of satanic attack on the church that's happening right now, we are gathering, we, the American church, are gathering half as much as we did a couple decades ago, cross-denominationally. And so I want to argue that we as Christians need more doctrine, not less. We need more encouragement, not less. We need to be together more rather than together less. Amen? We need that. You need that. I need that. Think if you just cut right in half all the time we spent together. We wouldn't be as close. We wouldn't be as unified. And our souls would be less sanctified. You see, 154 worship service is better than 52. 154 services where we are receiving the means of grace is better than 52. We need more of God in this gospel, not less. I've told the story before. I'll tell it again. There's a little old lady who went to her urban church. She came in. Uh, by public transportation, and she was feeble. It was, she had a hard time walking, and, uh, and someone stopped her and asked her one Lord's Day evening, Mrs. Smith, how is it that you come back to the service every Lord's Day, to the evening service? You're here every week, and clearly you have a hard time getting around. I know it's, it's difficult, and she says, yes, well, here's the secret. My heart gets there first, and my legs follow after. 
And what a testimony are our hearts here. We need more of God. We need more of his gospel. We need more of the means of grace. And so the Christian family is committed to Sabbath worship. The third way we can serve God in our homes is through the cultivating of godly conversation. The Christian family is devoted to godly conversation. I mentioned this earlier. You noticed again in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, uh, that it says uh, that you should love the Lord your God with all your hearts uh, and, and your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You're just talking about them all the time. When you're sitting down, when you're lying down, when you're walking, you're talking about these things. What are some ways to do this? Well, you can talk about uh, the sermons on the Lord's Day and be kind, okay, be kind. No roast preacher. But you can talk about the things you learn from, from the preaching. You can discuss life issues in connection with God's Word. You can share what you've been learning in your personal quiet times. You can ask the children what they've been learning in their devotions. Discuss current events or life issues in reference to God's Word. You see, it shouldn't be awkward for us to talk about God around our tables and in our living rooms. And this is where we come to point number four which is really in the meat of our text in Ephesians 6, and that is the Christian family is devoted to biblical parenting. The Christian family is devoted to biblical parenting. And, and beloved, we don't parent in a vacuum. We don't parent in a vacuum. Something or someone will always inform the way we raise our children and run our households. As Christians, it should be the Word of God that informs our parenting model and our decisions and our discipline and our household patterns. We don't want the Disney Channel or Oprah Winfrey or ESPN or the latest pop psychologist or well-intentioned unbelieving neighbor or coworker to teach us how to raise our kids. We must turn to Scripture. And here in Ephesians 6, we get some keen insights into the nuts and bolts of family life, how God wants children to relate to parents and parents to relate to their children. And here in our passage, we see God's care for children, don't we? Did you notice in Ephesians 6, look there with me, that the Bible addresses children directly? Hey, kids, guess what? Listen to Pastor John for just a minute here. God speaks to you directly in his word. He speaks to the children in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. And we also see God's love for children very clearly in his gospels. For instance, in Mark 10, 13, you remember the story. Jesus uh, and his disciples had left Galilee. They were on a journey down to Jerusalem when people began bringing their children to Jesus so that he might bless them. The people were bringing their kids to Jesus. And when the disciples saw what was happening, they began to shoo the children away. Oh, away, you children. Away. And Jesus was indignant. He was angry with his disciples for shooing the children away. In verse 14, it says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the, the kingdom of God. Kids, do you know that the kingdom of God belongs to you? Jesus says right here, God's gracious promises have always 
included children. Amen? They've always included children. His covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7 was also extended to his children and his children's children and so on. In Acts 2.39, the apostle Peter at Pentecost proclaimed that the promise of salvation in Christ was for you and for your children. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, the children of believers are referred to as a holy seed. And so we baptize our children because they are members of the visible covenant community or the church and recipients of God's covenant promises. Jesus loves and includes the children. He does not shoo them away. They are not second-rate citizens in God's kingdom and church. They are rather an important and integral part of it. And so recognizing this reality, it should not surprise us that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, provides specific instructions for covenant children in this section of Ephesians dealing with the Christian's obedience and sanctification in the realm of human relationships. He doesn't just speak to adults. He speaks to the children of the church. Indeed, when the letter, the epistle to the Ephesians, written by Paul from a Roman prison, shows up at the church and it's read to the congregation, the children are present and they are hearing these words in Ephesians 6, verse 1 and 2. They would have heard. They were regarded as recipients of God's instruction. And so look at the instruction for the children. Children are commanded by God to obey their parents. To obey their parents. Why? Because it's right. It's right. God has established order, and it's right for children to obey their parents. It's what the Lord in His sovereign and infinite wisdom has ordained for the structure of the child-parent relationship. The household is not set on the terms of the child, but rather God has given this authority to the parents. Without this authority structure, there is all kinds of chaos and family dysfunction. And practically speaking, it makes a lot of sense. The parent is much older and wiser than his or her children. The Christian parent has much more knowledge about God's Word and the world in which we live. At least they should. Children are commanded by God to obey their parents, for this is right. And in a parallel passage in Colossians 4, Paul exhorts children to obey their parents in everything. Now listen, kids. For this pleases the Lord. You please the Lord when you joyfully obey your mommy and your daddy. This is one of the main ways the Bible assures you that you can please the Lord. And so next time your parents say something like, hey, go up and clean up your room, the first thought that should enter your mind, kids, is I want to go do that because I know when I obey my parent who says this to me that I am pleasing the Lord. By doing this, obedience to parents is to be characterized by three things. It's to be prompt and complete and joyful. Obedience is to be right away, all the way, and with a happy heart, as one author said. We must remember this. We also must remember, kids, that obedience to your parents does not earn you a place in heaven. Oh, no. 
None of us will go to heaven because of our obedience. No, we cannot get to heaven by our own obedience because we never perfectly obey. And that's God's standard, perfection. He is holy and we are not. And even on our best days, kids, even when you seem to be very obedient, still your obedience is not perfect. And this is why we need Jesus, because he was perfect and is perfect. And so we look to him for our salvation. So here's the point. Kids, listen to this. You don't obey your parents because it will make God love you. You obey your parents because God already loves you. And he's giving you instructions for a blessed life in obedience to the Lord. And so your obedience to your parents, whom you can see, will help you to obey God, whom you cannot see. So important. Notice also that children are commanded by God to obey their parents in the Lord. In the Lord. What does that mean, in the Lord? Well, it means that their obedience is no, no, in no way separate from or apart from their obedience to God. In fact, as children obey their parents, they are in a very real sense obeying the Lord. They're obeying the Lord, they're in the Lord, and they are pleasing the Lord. And children are called by God to honor their parents. Look there in verse 2. Here we have uh, uh, the fifth commandment being quoted, uh, where it says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, I don't want to say a whole lot about this for time's sake, but when you obey your parents, the Bible says in general terms that you will live a long and a blessed life. And then if you disobey your parents and you rebel against them, then your life may be cut short. Now, there are times, of course, where the wicked live a long life and the righteous do not. But in general terms, we know that those who honor their parents live a long and a blessed life. Now, what about for parents? What does this passage say to parents? Look with me at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul is directly addressing fathers here as the head of the home. And he begins with a negative exhortation and then gives a positive one. First of all, he says, don't provoke your children to anger. What does this mean exactly? It means that we are called not to exasperate our children by treating them in a way that is harsh or domineering. We provoke our children to anger when we are unreasonable with them, when we are highly impatient with them, or when we constantly scold them. We want to raise our children in the Lord and we want to discipline them, but we do not want to crush their spirit with harsh words and an overbearing style of parenting. We need to be careful of this kind of thing. We see this exhortation right here in verse 4. The line between being lovingly firm and unreasonably harsh is not always easy to detect, which is why we want to be prayerfully dependent upon God's word and spirit for wisdom. It's why we want to surround ourselves with fellow believers who are uh, raising children as well so we can bounce ideas off each other and encourage one another and pray for one another and confess sin to one another. 
because, again, that line is not always easy. And raising children is not always easy. You know, every tradition has its strengths and weaknesses. And in my experience in the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition, we can be somewhat overly harsh in parenting. And we need to be careful about that. And we need to laugh more and pray more and be more patient with our children as they are growing in the Lord. And particularly, if I can say, particularly as it concerns our children, we need to be careful that we don't think that, you know, every moment is a moment where their whole life could just be a complete disaster. You know, your child's three years old and thinking, if this happens, this is going to be the end. That's just not true. And so we need to be patient and prayerful as it concerns our children. You know, we want and desire God's patience with us, don't we, as parents, as Christians? And so we need to be careful that we don't exasperate our children, that we let them grow in the Lord and we teach them and pray for them and are patient with them. And it's not easy and there are always are questions. And I I told someone not too long ago that if I was to write a book on parenting, it would have one page and one word. It would say pray. Because it's just hard, isn't it? To raise children in this, in this world and in this generation. And it has always been. If we read our Bibles, we see that there have always been these challenges with the children of believers. But we always want to err on the side of love prayerfulness and patience and gentleness, the very words we read in Ephesians 4. We are to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are to bring them up or, or raise them. And even this, this Greek word used here for bring them up or raise is a word that, that conveys the idea of gentleness and patience and forbearance. So again, we're called to be patient with our children, even as he is with us. Secondly, we are to bring up our children in the discipline of the Lord. This word also, discipline, could be nurture. And that's what's being conveyed. We are to nurture our children. Our families are like a garden, and our children are, are like flowers in the garden. We nurture them, we feed them, and they grow. And they're not going to be oak trees overnight. And so we pray that God would form and shape their character through His Word and through the week after week, month after month, year after year, prayer and family worship and, and Lord's Day keeping and fellowship in the life of the church. We do not despise the day of small things. We are to bring them up uh, in the instruction of the Lord. That is with admonition. That's another way to uh, translate it is the admonition, the warnings. So we're called to warn our children about uh, what is happening in the world. Uh, it's important, I think, today to, to help our children to understand uh, some of these basic things that the world is so confused on uh, as it concerns the moral revolution, human sexuality, marriage, all of these things. And we are to bring up our children by being a good example to them. We should be able to say, do as I do, not just do as I say. We will confuse our children if over the course of their lives. They do not see their parents taking seriously the things that they are told 
they must take seriously. And let me say this, so important. We also must be ready at the drop of a hat to ask our children for forgiveness. If we have failed or sinned and not been the parents that God has called us to be. And I'm not talking about just like, you know, a general kind of thing. I'm talking about in the moment when there's a, a loss of patience or where there's a frustration expressed in a way that's ungodly or whatever it may be that we are quick to say, would you please forgive me? Mommy and daddy are sinners too, and we need God's grace. We depend uh, upon it. Our children should hear us confessing sin during family worship, thanking God for his forgiveness and for his mercy. It's something that a lot of children never hear. A lot of children never hear their parents asking for forgiveness, admitting wrong, admitting fault. And so we can see why our children have a skewed view of things, if that is the case. And so finally, the Christian family is devoted to cultivating a safe haven from the wickedness of our culture in the home. This is so important in our day, our day of digital technology, where there are screens everywhere, where it's become a part of the ecosystem of our culture to have phones and iPads and, and smart TVs and computers and all of these things. We need to make sure that we're careful that ungodliness doesn't come into our home because Satan wants to make shipwreck of our families, of our marriages, of our children, and of our families. He is deceitful, and he often enters our homes and then our hearts in the sneakiest of ways, and we must be mindful of this. Joel Beakey says this, quote, Today we live in an age of images, televisions, Computer screens, books, magazines, posters, billboards, even cell phones surround us with pictures. We may not be able to stop the world from posting lurid and idolatrous images, but we must control what images we let into our homes. It might be pornography. It might be the more subtle danger of worldliness. Spiritual leadership in the home may require us to limit, turn off, or discard some form of media or technology in our homes. And so we must take care as it concerns these things and various ways. And some of these will be based upon the ages of your children. You need to be careful uh, as it concerns digital technology and other things that come into our homes. You can no longer, you can no longer uh, see programming as safe anymore. Uh, children's programming and things are sending so many wicked messages. We need to be careful. And so... As we conclude, the Christian family is devoted to worship, devoted to a Christian Sabbath, devoted to godly conversation, devoted to biblical parenting, and devoted to making the home a safe haven from worldliness. And there are two things to remember as we close. Parents, we will not do this perfectly. We will fail to be the parents that God has called us to be. All have sinned, all parents have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we look to Christ for grace and for forgiveness. We do not put on self-righteous fronts like the Pharisees. We say, I, 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 I did this, I did that. And I'm not like those parents over there. No, we admit our faults. 
We confess our sins. We recognize that we have fallen short of God's glory, and we admit that. And we don't admit it in a way that is self-righteous. We say, yes, yes, I'm an imperfect parent, and I need God's grace, and I need forgiveness. And all of this, of course, drives us to the gospel. It drives us to the gospel, which brings us back into a right standing with the perfect parent, as it were, and the perfect elder brother, where the elder brother obeys the father perfectly and then gives his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the elder brother ushers us back into the presence of God in communion with the father. All by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we contemplate parenting, kids, as you think about your own lives and how you fall short of obeying your parents perfectly, you look to the gospel, you look to Christ, your elder brother who gave his life for you so that you could have a relationship with the Father by grace through faith and be saved forever. And one word of pastoral admonition Let us not judge others and be overly critical of others in their parenting. You know, they always say when you show up for Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, you you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about parenting, and they say you don't talk about religion. Those three things. Uh, Now, of course, we want to work the gospel into conversations with unbelieving family members and such, but we always want to be careful as it concerns judging other parents. We need to pray for others and encourage them by our example and when appropriate, our words. In my experience, nothing can be more hurtful than unloving and harsh criticism about how parents are raising their kids. There was the story of a man who was on a subway and his kids were going nuts on the subway and he had his head in his hands and the kids were jumping on the seats and and, and pushing each other and all these things and And finally, the guy said, sir, would you please control your children? And kind of spoke to him harshly. And the man looked up. His eyes were full of tears. And he said, I'm so sorry. We're just coming from my wife's funeral. And that's an extreme example of how being judgmental can be way off. But how often are we critical of others? I know uh, there's a, a book title that says, um, I was a perfect parent, and then it says in small letters, before I had kids. And I remember going to restaurants with my wife before we had children, thinking, what's wrong with them? And now I can only assume people say that about us, because that's what people say. But we need to make charitable assumptions about others, and also we need to make charitable assumptions about those who give unsolicited advice about parenting. Let us not react like vipers when people come to give us encouragement about parenting. But beloved, may our homes truly be Christian homes, full of God, not full of the world, full of joyful worship and grateful obedience to His Word, full of faith, in good times, and even through the tears. May we pray with the hymnist, 
Oh, give us homes built firm upon the Savior, where Christ is head, counselor, and guide, where every child is taught his love and favor and gives his heart to Christ, the crucified. How sweet to know that though his footsteps waver, his faithful Lord is walking by his side. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are indeed the perfect Father. And we thank you for your Son, our elder brother, the second Adam, who lived a sinless life in perfect conformity to your law and then laid his life down on the cross at Calvary, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. We thank you that he endured your wrath and turned it away from us unto himself and paid the full debt of our sins. We thank you that he died and rose from the dead on the third day and made appearances to his disciples and taught them of the kingdom of God for 40 days and then ascended into heaven and you exalted him, Father, to your right hand and he now has all authority in heaven and on earth because you gave it to him. And now, Lord, we are called to go and to make disciples, and that begins in our homes. Help us, Lord. Grant us grace and wisdom as we parent our young children and as we parent our older children and as we interface with our children who have left the home and perhaps some who do not know you. We pray for their souls, that you would draw them back to yourself, that the prayers of their parents would haunt them in the very best way and that your spirit would work in their lives and help them to remember their baptism and all that it symbolizes and points them to in Christ and his shed blood. And we pray this in Jesus' name.